Hello, and welcome to a series of special podcasts from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy. Our topic today, Failed States. Our guest, Francis Fukuyama, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies. Professor Fukuyama, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So when we have this conversation about failed states, especially on academic terms, it often begins with this question that's a lot more vexing than it seems at first blush about what actually constitutes a failed state, how we should define it. Uh, But you write in your essay that you don't think having a precise definition actually matters all that much. Why is that? Well, I don't think so in terms of American foreign policy. There is a spectrum from a completely collapsed uh, state like Syria today or Libya and a state that's in a way coherent but just weak like Nigeria. And in a, in a way, both of them are problems because either the state failure or the weakness uh, is what gives the opening for uh, terrorism. Uh, you know, the terrorists um, take advantage of the fact that there is no uh, <clears throat> state with a monopoly of force that can keep them under control. And that's why they've moved into northern Nigeria or why Boko Haram is so important in northern Nigeria or why uh, ISIS has been operating in Syria and Iraq. Um, in any event, the, the, the issue is, is different degrees of weakness. And so I think just you know, finding a, a dividing line between a failed state and a weak state is really not all that important because the effect is, is really the same. And that is one of the arguments that you'll often hear proffered by those who are, are really concerned by failed states or extremely weak states is the idea that by creating these power vacuums, you create the predicate for extremist groups to have operational bases. Right now, you know, as you said, with Boko Haram in Nigeria, with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But you write in your piece, I'm quoting you here, I believe that the United States has overestimated the overall dangers represented by terrorism coming from such sources. Explain that. Well, yes, I think uh, experts like Brian Jenkins at RAND who have looked at terrorism over the long history of the phenomenon, uh, I think have concluded that in a sense, terrorism you know, never presents uh, um, an existential threat to any developed society. Uh, it is a kind of political theater and they get mileage out of it by the reaction that they uh, they create. And so uh, if you look at the total number of people killed in terrorist accident, incidents, including September 11th, uh, they're always minuscule as, as compared to other sorts of, of let's say, death and destruction ca- that could be uh, ameliorated through public policy like highway deaths. But obviously, politically, someone being killed by a terrorist uh, gets on the news and is of much greater national concern uh, than – a highway death, uh, and in fact, the spectacular, you know, political theater that was constituted by uh, September 11th really motivated the United States to invade two Middle Eastern countries uh, and pay, you know, trillions of dollars in terms of long-term costs in order to <clears throat> do what, argue, you know, what the government argued was a remediation of, of that problem. And so, I think, in many respects, the problem lies more in our failure to find the right level of reaction rather than uh, in the act itself. So the considerations are obviously going to vary with the specific circumstances of each case, but what are the criteria that we're looking for as to 
when failed states should really matter to the U.S. You point out, for instance, on the humanitarian side in your essay that you've had as many people die in the Congo over the last decade as in the Holocaust, and yet there doesn't really seem to be much of a market in the West for intervention. Are the, are the purely humanitarian cases essentially superfluous in national security terms? Well, right. That's what makes them a, a, a pure humanitarian case. Uh, I actually think that there are points at which the international community at relatively low cost and risk to itself could actually intervene in some of these uh, cases. For example, the British uh, intervened with a very small kind of battalion-sized force at, towards the end of Sierra Leone's um, civil war, and they actually managed to settle it uh, with no casualties uh, and um, relatively low cost. And so I wouldn't say that this is something we should never get involved in, but I do think that that uh, is different from uh, um, places that actually pose real security threats. And by the way, a lot of those security threats are really not threats to direct American interests. They're threats to American friends and allies around the world. So that's what's gotten us engaged in the Middle East, threats to Israel, threats to the Kurds, threats to minority groups that we worry about. Uh, and I think those are all legitimate concerns, but um, – uh, you know there there are areas that we worry about more than others, and the DRC unfortunately was not one of them. Let's talk about the nation building side of failed states and some of the historical precedents. I mean, we tend to talk about this in a modern context, and, and I want to get to that in a minute. But you take this back in your essay to two historical trends that we, I think, tend to think of as distinct categories from nation building. The first being. Settler colonies, Europeans coming into sparsely inhabited places like North America or Australia and setting up shop. And the second is basically what we'd place in the imperialism category, the British in India, for example. Are there any lessons we can draw from those historical experiences when we're talking about modern nation building? Well, you know, the uh, settler colony example is a little bit mischievous. I mean, uh, to people who say that foreigners can never implant institutions, I, I just say, well, that's historically not true because mm -hmm. actually if you've got a very lightly inhabited area like North or South America or, or at least parts of South America and you wipe out all the indigenous inhabitants or herd them into reservations, then yes, you, you settle it with your own people and you can import uh, pretty good uh, democratic institutions. Um, and uh, I actually think that the colonial experience is really not that far away from some of the things that the international community has tried to do in uh, various failed or weak states in the last uh, generation. Uh, so, for example, in Africa, after the scramble for Africa in the 1880s, uh, European countries like Britain and France found themselves in possession of these vast territories. It turned out that they couldn't really exploit them for much economic benefit. They could barely pay for themselves. And in a certain sense, they had to justify to their own taxpayers why they were uh, there. And therefore, they came up with policies like indirect rule that were intended to minimize uh, the cost to them and yet hold on to these areas as, as areas of strategic importance. What do you make of the examples of – uh, Germany and Japan after World War II. It seems that in the last decade with the U.S. efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
that was always the counter argument against the skeptics that look, we managed to rebuild these two societies and to essentially defang them in terms of the threat that they pose to the rest of the world. Are there aspects of those experiences that we can extrapolate? Are are they too specific to that time and place to have much relevance to the contemporary concerns? Well, I think the context was completely different. Germany and Japan were industrialized, developed countries uh, at the time uh, of their occupation. So we did not need to develop them. What we needed to do is preside over uh, a reconstruction period when after defeat and uh, economic collapse, they could get their economies going again. And so they had actually done the hard work of development uh, already. And that's completely different from a situation like Afghanistan, where you're really starting from an extremely low base, both economically and, and, and politically. Uh, I point out, even so, that we stayed in both Germany and Japan. Uh, and in fact, from 1945 up to the present moment, we still have troops in both of those countries. And so in a sense, the occupation never uh, ended. And that was um, uh, even under those favorable conditions where you're just trying to reconstruct an already developed country, uh, it still took a very, very long uh, political commitment. Playing this forward to the present day, one common criticism, or in some cases I suppose it's just analysis, not necessarily criticism, is that the reason that we weren't successful in Afghanistan or Iraq as far as building institutions is that Western democracies now sort of lack the prerequisites of successful nation building. We tend to be impatient. We tend to have a low threshold for pain. Some people would argue that we don't have the will to be as aggressive as su in suppressing opposition in those countries as we should be. How much credence do you give to that argument? Well, it's by and large right. I think that there's about a five-year uh, uh, statute of limitations on these occupations. It's a little bit longer than one presidential term. Uh, and this was true in Central America, in Vietnam, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. We lasted a little bit longer, but but this was certainly applicable in uh, Iraq, that we enter these countries with a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm that we're going to completely remake the political and economic system. It turns out to be much, much more difficult than we ever anticipated. And then finally we decide, well, it's actually not worth all of the investment of lives and uh, treasure in order to bring this about. And then we depart and oftentimes we leave these countries worse off than when we started. You make an interesting argument in your essay that of all the aspects of nation building, it's installing democratic institutions, setting up the vote that's the easiest However, if we extrapolate a little from what you're writing, it also seems like you might be saying that compared to all the other things you do, that establishing democratic institutions may also be one of the least important. Is, is that a fair characterization? No, I don't know that it's the least important. But you know, in my view, there's really three uh, sets of institutions that make for a successful modern uh, political system. So one is having a state that is modern and impersonal not corrupt, uh, uh, willing to treat citizens on an equal basis. The second is a rule of law that constrains the powerful. It's not the rule of law if it doesn't do that. And then finally, democratic accountability. Uh, and I think that democratic accountability is actually something we can do pretty well. We're pretty good at monitoring elections, setting up electoral commissions. Uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, the elections were really you know, corrupted and, and, and questionable, but they produced something like 
a legitimate government. The thing that we really have a lot of trouble doing is the modern state part, a state that is uh, impersonal and uncorrupt. And there I think we failed entirely. Okay, so let's finish up today by talking about the three paths that you characterize as the real options going forward for nation building. And I, and I want you to highlight the strengths and the weaknesses of all three. The first is what you call the the all-in option, which is we devote as many resources as we can in terms of time, money, manpower. Uh, what are the pros and cons there? Well, that's the option that we took in both Afghanistan and Iraq, where you have a large uh, presence on the ground, a lot of boots on the ground. You engage in very expensive development projects to try to get the economy going uh, and so forth. And that uh, is, you know, the, the if you're going to succeed and you can do this for a generation or two, uh, I think that there have been cases where this has actually worked out. But this is where I think the impatience of democracies uh, gets in the way of this long-term uh, commitment, and it is expensive, and I think Democratic voters reasonably raise the question of whether it's worth it to them. You call the second option indirect rule. In, in this case, the outside power is still, in some sense, the ultimate source of sovereignty, but you're really trying to go with the grain of local mores and laws. You're trying to give most operational authority to local figures. What are the pluses and negatives there? Yeah, this uh, term indirect rule actually came from the British Empire, where in Africa they realized that they didn't have the resources or the wisdom to actually rule uh, many of their colonies directly. And so they tried to go with what they called uh, native law and custom. Uh, if you apply this to Afghanistan or Iraq, it would have meant that instead of trying to establish modern democracies in both countries, you would have basically collected some warlords, put together a coalition that would have stabilized the country. You would have winked at a lot of corruption and a lot of violence. Maybe in Iraq, you would have put a non-Bathist uh, uh, general uh, in charge of a military dictatorship as long as it produced stability and then hope that this would uh, guarantee your strategic interests. And obviously the downsides of that, you know, there's a moral one. Uh, Americans really don't like uh, this kind of policy uh, because it really forces them to be, um, you know, fairly, uh, fairly cynical. But I think the bigger problem is that we usually do not have enough uh, local knowledge to really know how to construct this kind of, how to work with these kinds of local actors. And I think that's been a, you know, that was a problem in the British Empire, and I think it's a problem uh, if we were to choose this kind of course today. And the final approach is containment. Ar articulate what that means for us and then what the benefits and drawbacks are there. Well, this is actually what I think we ought to be doing right now vis-a-vis -vis ISIS in Syria and Iraq. So containment would put no boots on the ground. Uh, we would largely use air power. Uh, it would be comparable to what was called offshore balancing by the British. So this was the long-term British strategy towards the continent of Europe, that they'd have no permanent friends or enemies. Uh, they would lean against whatever power seemed to be dominant, whether that was France under Napoleon or Germany under Hitler, uh, and they would switch sides if it turned out that the former friend looked like they were going to be the dominant uh, power. And I think that you know, right now what we face in much of the Middle East is a spreading Sunni-Shiite civil war. I don't think that we actually have much of a dog in that fight. Uh, but we do want to make sure that it doesn't spill out uh, uncontrollably. We want to protect 
uh, minorities from uh, oppressive majorities, and uh, a policy of containment would not try to either um, get rid of Assad or destroy the uh, Islamic State. It would simply, in a sense, try to balance them against each other and make sure that they don't hurt anybody that we care about. Final question. Play this, for, play this forward for us. Looking at America in 2015, a country which it's probably fair to say thinks about these issues a little differently than it did before the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. What do you think is the approach we're most likely to take towards failed states going forward? What's going to be our default attitude towards them and, and towards nation building? Uh, unfortunately, I think we tend to go through these long-term cycles where we um, – we learn a lesson and then we forget it over the next generation and then we make the same mistake and we you know, are back to where we were. Uh, right now, we are in the post-Vietnam phase of this cycle. We, we did this in the 1970s where as a result of a unpleasant engagement, we now want to disengage and we realize that that's really not possible. Uh, and so now we have to build a consensus for uh, a different or perhaps more limited uh, form of engagement. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, there is learning over time, although I must say that the record of American foreign policy in much of the developing world doesn't show much of a, uh, a tendency towards institutional uh, learning. But, you know, you can see that we're already getting we're already getting sucked back in. And so now there are calls for, you know, stronger uh, measure. You know, basically Obama has picked the containment option, but you see people getting beheaded and there's all these demands to do something uh, you know, much more decisive to, to get rid of this problem. And uh, it's possible that we'll go through the cycle again in the next few years on a fairly rapid basis. All right. Our guest has been Francis Fukuyama, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Professor Fukuyama, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.